the book of John and looking at this chapter. I know these couple of chapters are, are lengthy chapters, but uh, this is a, a, a powerful passage that reminds us of who our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. Have you ever had a situation where you've, you've, you've tried to do right? You've put your very best effort in? You've really tried to be a blessing? You've really tried to be of service? Maybe have gone out of your way, maybe given of yourself, and you've sacrificed, and then you were met with no thanks, no real appreciation, maybe even met with wrong kinds of reactions, people who, even though you have tried to do your very best and tried to be a blessing, they still give you grief, give you a hard time. I can't help but think that That's where our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is at this moment in John chapter number 5. He has been a blessing. He has been a a, a miracle worker. Uh, He had been in Jerusalem before. We know in John chapter 2 that he had done miracles there. The the primary signs up to this point had been done uh, there in Galilee with the, the changing of the water to wine. And then the healing of the nobleman's son. And now he's back in Jerusalem for this feast as we looked at last week. And he heals a lame man by the pool of Bethesda. And this lame man had been lame for 38 years. From verse 14, it seems to indicate that maybe the cause of his his lameness was an act of sin. We're not 100% sure. We know that this lame man, his his faith was in this water at the pool of Bethesda. We spent a lot of time looking at that last week. He even answers when Jesus asked him in verse number 6, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him in verse 7, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. So his faith was in this water, and he, he trusted in that uh, water to be able to heal him. He is not even at this point expressing faith in Christ, and yet Christ in his compassion, in his love for that man, in demonstration of his supernatural power, in his deity, he heals the lame man. And what is Jesus met with? He's met with resistance. Instead of the religious leaders rejoicing, instead of the religious leaders coming together and in rejoicing and celebrating the healing of this lame man, we read there in verse number 14, afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple, that is the man that he had healed, the lame man, and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest the worse thing come unto thee. The man departed, and he told the Jews that it was Jesus. So the lame man at the time of his healing didn't even realize it was Jesus that healed him. Now, having gone to the temple, probably the lame man had gone to the temple, guessing again a little bit, but probably had gone to to offer sacrifices to to do uh, what, what he should be doing, having been healed. But he turns and he goes to the Jews, tells them that it was Jesus that had made him whole. Backing up to verse number 9, John gives us, by the inspiration of God, a piece of information at the end of verse 9 that is key to this passage. And on the same day was the Sabbath. 
So now in verse 16, and therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Jesus had come preaching the gospel. Jesus had come healing. Here's Jesus doing good, working the works of God. Heals a lame man, and he is immediately met with resistance. Verse 16 even says they began to persecute him. And they were looking already for opportunity to slay him. And they used this breaking of the Sabbath as their reason for accusing Jesus. This Sabbath principle, this Sabbath command, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, had now been burdened, as I mentioned last week, with 39 rules, man-made rules, that had been heaped upon that command to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These religious leaders had added these 39 rules, one of which, one of which, stated that anyone who carried anything from a public place to a private place intentionally on the Sabbath was guilty of death by stoning. And here's this man, Jesus had healed him, and the punishment, according to the Pharisaical law, was for him to be stoned. And they were angry. They were looking for now an opportunity to take Jesus and to kill him, to slay him. They began an open and public persecution of Jesus. So that is our first point this morning, the conflict regarding the Sabbath. The conflict regarding the Sabbath. In their pride, the religious leaders used threats. They used fear. Particularly in regards to the Sabbath, there were other commandments of men that they had heaped upon the law, this works righteousness that they were pursuing in their religious pride, in their spiritual pride, they were using threat and fear as instruments of control, as instruments of power over the people. And this spiritual pride blinded the religious leaders. It it blinded them to their own sin And it also, in their leadership, blinded many of the Jews and turned their hearts and minds against Christ. They were blind leaders of the blind in their spiritual pride. Angry with Jesus, looking now for an opportunity to slay him, persecuting him because he had broken one of their man-made laws. And it exposed their pride, it exposed their hypocrisy. And instead of confronting themselves and their sin, they went after Jesus. And isn't that the hard-heartedness of man? Isn't that just the way man is in his stubbornness, and his pride, in his hard-heartedness, in his depravity? Even with all the good that Jesus was doing, even with the preaching of the gospel... Immediately upon learning that Jesus had healed this lame man on the Sabbath day, the religious leaders went after Jesus, looking for an opportunity to slay him, to kill him. Their religious pride had blinded them, was leading them to destruction, as well as those who were following them. 
Christ had not broken the Old Testament law. There was no moral law that Christ had broken by healing the lame man on the Sabbath day. We're reminded in Mark chapter 2 that the, the, the Sabbath was made for man. That Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. See, this Sabbath commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, it was prohibitive against regular daily work. Whether that might mean harvesting or going out in the fields and planting or some of the uh, regular work that might have been done in an agricultural society. But there was no prohibition against healing on the Sabbath day. As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 2, the Pharisees came after Jesus and his disciples for so much as plucking corn on the Sabbath day. They were hungry. They were walking by a field of corn and they plucked the corn to eat it. And the Pharisees came after Jesus with condemnation. And how Jesus responded was he gave the example of how David, when he was running from Saul and his, he and his men were hungry and thirsty, they went into the tabernacle and they took the bread from the table of showbread. That bread that had been used there in the temple that was the, the holy bread, they had gone there to the tabernacle and they, were, they, they took the, table of show, the, the showbread from the table of showbread, that leftover bread. And Jesus used that as an illustration to, to show the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, that there was no violation of any moral code, of any Mosaic law, by healing, by plucking corn. And in Luke 13, Jesus even came back to the religious leaders with an example of how they themselves would feed and water their animals on the Sabbath. They would even rescue an animal from a ditch, from danger, on the Sabbath day. And yet they would condemn him for healing the sick and the diseased. Jesus responded to their accusations with truth. He responded with compassion. He responded with care. He responded with revelation of himself. And we'll get to that. But Jesus was reminding the Pharisees. He was reminding the religious leaders. And by the inspiration of God and his word and the preservation of God's word. It's a reminder to us as well of the Sabbath principle, of the Sabbath principle being that on the seventh day God rested and that the Sabbath was made for man. It was made for us. After God had created the entire universe in six literal 24-hour days, was God so exhausted after six days of speaking the universe into existence, was God so exhausted that he had to take a day off and go take a nap and disappear for a while? No. The Sabbath day was a day of rest for God, but it was instituted as a principle for man. The Sabbath was given to man. Now, there are, there are some who still follow the Sabbath as Saturday, and they, they adhere to it sometimes in, in, in a very legalistic way. I've met some of these people. And sadly, there are some who use the Sabbath principle and even some of the Mosaic law and the dietary 
principles, the dietary customs, and they have actually turned it into a works-based religion. I've known people that they literally take the Sabbath-keeping and they take these dietary laws and that is their way that they earn favor with God. That is how they earn their salvation. It's sad. We know that Mark 2 and verses 27 and 28 teach that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, which in and of itself put him on the same authority level as God. So when he said that in Mark 2, that angered the religious leaders because Jesus was saying he is God who is Lord over the Sabbath. He put himself at the same authority level as God. But he says there in Mark 2 that the Sabbath was made for man. So what is the Sabbath principle? It's simply that God knew as created beings that we would need rest. And that we would need a day set aside for worship. Because we are busy people. And we are physically tired. Now sin has now entered the world and we have now death and the pain and the suffering that that comes as a result of sin. We spent some time even looking at that last week. So when God instituted the Sabbath principle, the Sabbath day... I realized that at that time, there was not sin yet in the world. But God was still setting aside a day for mankind to focus on the worship of God and for resting from his labors. Now, we live in a day of 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year. There used to be a day, and I'm young enough to remember, old enough, to remember when the TV stations would go off at midnight and there would be the fuzz on the screen and the, the lines on the screen and I think sometimes they even might have played the national anthem or something. Well, that, those, days are, those days are gone. Pretty much it's 24-7 on really any network, any news channel, and now with the internet, there's... Always something to watch or to distract us, to entertain us, to keep us active, busy, whatever it might be. And and it's one of the issues here in America. It's one of the issues universally, globally. That we are so busy and we are so distracted and we have so many forms of entertainment that we are losing our focus upon God. We're, we're even eliminating the Sabbath principle. Now I'm reading articles and I'm, I'm even finding books that are written about the Sabbath principle for Christians because we now have gotten so busy and we now exalt ourselves in spiritual pride because we work ourselves to our, to our bones. As if being a workaholic, making God out of our work, makes us more spiritual. And I remember having to, to learn this and I'm still having to be reminded, but I, I can remember as a, as a young person, and, and even to this day, I still have to, to, to battle it, but we can get so busy and have our schedule so full of so many things that we neglect God and his word, we neglect church. Church is, is just a, another blip on the radar. 
We, we have our daily crumb of Bible reading. And then we, 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 we spiritualize our busyness and say, well, I'm, I'm serving the Lord. And I, I began to deal with this early in my, my ministry days. As Kelly and I got married and we began to immerse ourselves in the ministry. And we realized that we were, we were pushing things to the limits. It was just the two of us at the time. And we began to realize just how much we were doing all the time, every day. And yet we were serving the Lord. We were in the ministry. And I remember there was a time, especially as I was uh, training for the ministry and coming out of college and seminary, there, there were even some that we would, we would talk to or some preachers or some of us preacher boys would be debating this topic and talking about how this burn and wear out for the attitude was very prevalent in the ministry. And there were some who were strong proponents of that, that you are married to the church. One man that I know, a, a good friend of mine, he's, he's not in full-time vocational ministry right now, but the very first ministry he went to, the pastor sat him down, gave him his salary, which was woefully inadequate, and then said to him, you are married to the church. And he wasn't there long and he realized this is not the way the ministry is to operate. And he, he realized, and then he went to another ministry that unfortunately was, was not too much different. But all that being said is we can forget the Sabbath principle. We need rest. Now, we also have another issue in our culture, don't we, of too much rest. Too much lazy time, not a good work ethic, not doing anything. Okay, we can go to that extreme, and we see that in, a, in our culture, and even we see politics now rewarding laziness. We, we actually have a government now that, by and large, rewards laziness and lack of work ethic. And, and actually then points at those who work hard and, and, and do their best to provide and and, and, and contribute regularly to society, those people sometimes are even mocked and ridiculed by our, our government and by certain segments of society. But it's a reminder here just that the Sabbath principle, for, for us as human beings, the Sabbath principle involves rest. We need rest. God gave sleep to us to repair our bodies, to do certain things while we are sleeping that are good for our health. And one of the first things that we do when we're busy is that we cut out the sleep. And then I remember, and, 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 and God taught me this, and I, and I still have to, to, to deal with it, but I don't do well on less than seven hours of sleep for multiple nights. I don't do well. And... and and there are, there are times in my life where I have gone and I have been running on five to six hours of sleep night after night, week after week, and I have a physical breakdown or worse, a spiritual breakdown because I've been neglecting a Sabbath principle. But again, the Sabbath principle is not just about rest, and we could get into a, a long rabbit trail about that, but the Sabbath principle is about us worshiping our God. Now, we're not given the Sabbath commandment in the New Testament. We understand the principle of Sabbath is still at work. 
the day that God set aside Saturday, the seventh day of the week for Sabbath, was a day that was for rest and focused on worship as prescribed in the Mosaic law. But in the New Testament, the Sabbath principle is still there. But the day of worship has changed to Sunday due to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ rising from the dead on the first day of the week. Every Sunday is, in a sense, Resurrection Sunday, though next Sunday we will celebrate Easter as the Resurrection Sunday. So we know from the pattern of the early church that they gathered on the first day of the week. We know that Christ rose again on the first day of the week, and we know that that specific command, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, the principle of Sabbath is still at work in the New Testament. But we have to remember that even though that particular command, remember the Sabbath day, as it applies to Saturday, the seventh day of the week, though it is not applicable in the form of the Mosaic law, that we are not under the law today, there is still the principle of rest that our God knows that we need, not in excess, but not also abusing ourselves with entertainment and work and making a God out of those things so that we neglect the rest, but also the Sabbath principle of worship. And worship is every day by the way we live. We are to live lives of worship. But there is a necessity of corporate worship, of setting aside time for personal worship and for corporate worship. That is part of God's design and plan. That's part of the Sabbath principle. And the devotion to God was lost by the religious leaders. They had even made the temple where the Sabbath Because the Sabbath was, yes, the seventh day of the week. But there were other Sabbaths, feast days, religious holidays. And the temple was where those Sabbaths were centered. In the wilderness days, it was the tabernacle. And what did Jesus have to do in the early days of his ministry when he went into Jerusalem, in his early days of his public ministry? He had to clean out the temple. It had become a den of thieves Another example of how the religious leaders had corrupted the worship and had burdened the Sabbath. So that no longer was there a focus upon God and worshiping the Lord and honoring Him. But it was upon strict rule keeping that exalted the religious leaders. That became a works based religion. And Jesus was attacking that. When he healed on the Sabbath, and those religious leaders came after him with accusations, this conflict regarding the Sabbath was part of Christ's work and part of God's will to expose the religious hypocrisy, to expose the spiritual pride. And it's a reminder to us how we can be uplifted and exalting ourselves in our spiritual pride. We can even rightly take a stand for truth and for righteousness, and we should. But it is a real problem when we become prideful and legalistic in our stand for what is right, in our stand for truth. And sometimes this manifests itself with a critical spirit. 
And I have to watch it. I have a little bit of pessimism in me. Kelly has helped me with that, and God has helped me with that. And I still have a little bit of pessimism in me. You know, a pessimist is just a realist, though, right? Okay? A pessimist is an optimist, optimist in denial. Anyway, I have a little bit of pessimism. I'm a black and white. I have the gift of prophecy in, that, in, in the right sense of the word. I, I have that in me. And so I'll get very realist pessimist sometimes. You know, there's some people that they, they can only see the, the glass half empty. Uh, they, they can only see the, the storm cloud and they never see the silver lining. There are people that are just like that. And then there are people who they're never happy unless they're complaining about something. I've known people in churches who they feel like it is their calling from God. It is their gift from the Holy Spirit to be the police of the church. Their critical spirit is so full of pride that I have even watched as individuals become so critical in their spiritual pride that they have bitterness that is deep down in their their crawl. And they're just heaping up all these supposed injustices and all these things that are always wrong and this person and that person. And they sit in church and they're, they're always thinking about the person behind them or the person in front of them or the person next to them. Keep it going, preacher. That's real good for them. Yep, I'm glad you hit that issue because that's the person on the third row. There's people like that and oftentimes there is a pride, there's a bitterness. And we have to guard ourselves against that. We have to deal with our own needs. It's not that we can't obviously see when there is a need to confront someone in compassion and speak the truth in love. Of course, that principle applies. But we have to be very careful that we're not pharisaical like these religious leaders, and become spiritually blind, often to our own sinfulness, or we allow bitterness to take root in our hearts, or hypocrisy to become the pattern of our life. And it is very damaging. I've said it many a time before. But hypocrisy is one of the greatest threats in a Christian home, in a preacher's home, in a home where there are moms and dads who come to church and they claim to love the Lord and they claim to know the Bible and claim to to serve God and yet there is a double life, there is a hypocrisy it's very damaging we have to be careful, we have to guard ourselves against it but here is this conflict regarding the Sabbath, it exposes the religious hypocrisy the pride, the spiritual pride, the critical spirit of these religious leaders and their hatred for Christ was now growing and now it was becoming public Now there were some in this religious circle who they were making it their agenda, their goal, to somehow discredit Christ and his ministry. So that's the conflict. But secondly, we see this morning, we see the claims regarding Christ's deity. The claims regarding Christ's deity. John chapter 5, and then let's go down. In verse 18, we see, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him. Because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. This is where the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are going to be confronted and they're going to have to either submit to the claims and honor Christ and come to him as their savior, or they're going to have to resist and continue in this persecution and on this agenda to take him 
and to kill him, to slay him. And here Jesus, after this man departs, as he tells this man, sin no more, and he, he goes out and he tells the Jews that it was Jesus, we see in verse 17 that Jesus' answer to these religious leaders, in verse 17, he begins with, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Christ's answer to their persecution, to their accusations, in this confrontation, Jesus answers with revelation, with truth regarding himself. He answers with eternal truths that speak to the doctrine of Christ's deity. This is a doctrine that has been given up by many, many, many churches and denominations through the years. They'll undermine the deity of Christ by denying the virgin birth. They'll undermine the deity of Christ by saying that he was just a good prophet, a good man, a religious leader. Maybe even he just fell asleep at the cross. He was unconscious as a result of the pain. But then the coolness of the cave, the tomb woke him up. All kinds of lies and theories and false ideas. Where the deity of Christ is denied or undermined or subverted. But here is Jesus' answer. Here are the claims that Christ makes. Five of them in this paragraph. Beginning at verse 17 where he says, My Father worketh here too, and I work. The first claim that Jesus makes is that he is equal to God in his very person. Christ identifies himself as God. His identity is that he is God. And this is, part of, this is part of John's theme. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John's theme is to reveal, one of his primary themes is to reveal Christ as the Son of God, as God in the flesh. And that believing in Him, you may have life through His name. And here Jesus makes a claim that he is equal with God in his very person. God is working continuously, and Jesus says, so do I. Go down, go down to verse 18. They recognized when he said God was his father, at the end of verse 18, they recognized by Jesus saying, my father, not our father, but my father, personalizing his relationship with God. They recognized when he said that, that he was making himself equal with God. The Jews recognize that. Those who deny the deity of Christ, they have a real problem with this passage. Because the religious leaders, they recognized it right away when he said, my father. He was putting himself equal with God. We see not only that he makes the claim that he is equal with God in his person, but verses 19 and 20, we see Jesus making the claim that he is equal with God in his works. The works that God does are the works of Jesus. Jesus does the works of God. Verse 19, then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. We see the Trinity. We see the Father, God the Father, and God the Son. 
We see the very works that Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying they are on par with the very work of God. It's the direct work of God that he is doing as the God man on the earth. His healing on the Sabbath was the work of God himself. Jesus is saying he has the authority and the power to do all that God does. He mentions a greater work in this verse, in these verses. He mentions a greater work. What is that greater work? It is the resurrection. It's probably a reference to the resurrection. That there will be a resurrection day, not only of all the dead, both saved and unsaved, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself that we will celebrate specifically next Sunday on Easter. So we see the claim that Jesus is equal with God in his person, that he is equal with God in his works. And then verse 21, Jesus also makes the claim that he is equal with God in his power and his sovereignty. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. This is a direct reference to raising the dead. God himself has power over life and death, and Jesus is claiming that same power. And that has applications even right now in the dignity of human life and how we deal with human life, both preborn and what is being dealt with among the medical community regarding physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia, end-of-life decisions. It is important that we recognize preborn life as well as end of life decisions. That those keys, the key to death and life, are in the power of God. They're in God's hands. And Jesus is claiming that power. And as believers, we can get into difficult decisions, in medical decisions that have to be made. But we are making decisions based on scriptural principles regarding the dignity of life because man is made in the image of God and because the key of death and hell, excuse me, the key of death and life is in the hand of God himself. And Jesus claims that same authority. That means that we go to these types of difficult decisions And we do so in a way that honors and reverences God and human life as God created it. And I know sometimes those are very, very difficult decisions. And they take some real wrestling and prayer. But when we err on the side of life, when we respect the dignity of human beings made in God's image, and when we seek God's will in those end-of-life decisions... And we seek to honor and recognize the scriptural principles of life and death being in the power of God, being in his hands, in the hands of Christ. Then I believe God will help us and lead us in making the right decision. Not to treat life at the end of life, at those end of life decisions, not to treat those people as lesser humans who need to be expunged, need to be removed, need to be eradicated because they're causing too much bloat on the medical system or because they are a leech to society or the other euphemisms that that they use today to try to belittle or to cover the dignity of a human being at the end of life 
So now you have in the Netherlands, you have a euthanasia law that just simply is defined as trauma or pain, which can mean you could have a bad day. It's almost to the point now in the Netherlands that you could have a bad day and you could get physician-assisted suicide. That's where those end-of-life decisions go. That's where euthanasia goes. And we know what's going on with preborn life, where a Supreme Court justice won't even acknowledge where life begins, where five babies massacred in Washington, D.C. by a brutal abortionist are left, and there's no investigation being done. And the D.C. police officer refers to those five babies as items. I'm really going to get upset if I keep going. But the power of life and death is in God's hands. And Jesus claimed that, and it was clear to those religious leaders what he was claiming as having the authority of God. Verse 22. For the Father judgeth no man but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. We used to drive by a church in Indy almost every Sunday. No judging, just Jesus. We, we have in Scripture, yes, a prohibition against self-righteous condemnation. But we're also told to judge righteously, to judge righteous judgment, to try the spirits, to see the fruit, to recognize evil and avoid it. So when a church puts on its billboard, on its sign, no judging, just Jesus, they're, they're saying you can come here any way you want and you can leave any way you want because we're not going to deal with sin. We're not going to deal with those things. I call them feel-good churches. You feel good when you come in, you feel good when you leave. Well, my job as a preacher is not always to make you feel warm and fuzzy. Doesn't mean that I want to bring down fire and brimstone on you every Sunday and every every Wednesday night. I don't want to be that way. I want to encourage and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. But as a preacher, part of my responsibility is to is to show God's people that there is a judgment day, and to show unbelievers that there is a judgment day, and Jesus will be the judge. For Jesus to make that claim that He is the judge was a clear claim to deity. He is, he, is now exer- he is claiming to exercise the very same power of God in bringing judgment upon the world. That is an awesome claim. Verse 23, we see the fifth claim. He is equal with God in his honor. Verse 23, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. You hear people sometimes say you can get to heaven, you can get to God any way you want as long as you're sincere. God's on the top of some mountain peak and there's lots of paths that get to that mountain peak and God's up there so you can be sincere you just have to try really hard. Hopefully your good works will outweigh your bad works. I think it's very clear that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus himself would say it in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And we come to Jesus on his terms. Not on our terms. 
We come on his terms as revealed in scripture. Why is there an authority problem in our culture? Because we don't want to submit to God. Because we don't want to obey his son, Jesus Christ. We don't want to submit to his lordship. We don't want to come to him as our savior. Why is there an authority problem in our culture? Because man wants to be his own authority. Which ultimately means you're following Satan's authority. Because to follow our own heart and to do our own thing and to go our own way, there is a way which seemeth, un, seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Jesus claims the same honor that God receives is the honor that he receives. The honor due to God is the same honor Christ deserves to receive. To dishonor Jesus Christ is to dishonor God himself. Because in order to honor God, we must honor his son. By rejecting Jesus Christ, people dishonor God. By rejecting Jesus Christ, the religious leaders were rejecting the God that they claimed to be serving in his law that they claimed to be protecting. And yet they were denying his very son, Jesus Christ. And in dishonoring Jesus Christ, they were condemning themselves to death without Christ, to an eternal hell. These claims regarding Christ's deity are awesome claims. wish we had time to go deeper into each of them, but for sake of time, we'll close this morning with the third principle. Not only, not only the conflict regarding the Sabbath and the claims regarding Christ's deity, but finally this morning we see the confidence in Christ's resurrection. We're just going to have a minute or two here to just go through these verses. But Jesus continues in verses 24 through, 20, 24 through 29, and he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that, bear, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, again, he emphasizes, truly, truly, verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Jesus points to belief in himself, belief in Christ as the way to eternal life. A person who genuinely repents of his sin and places his faith and trust in Christ as his personal Savior receives eternal life. He no longer faces death and condemnation, but he looks forward to life and peace for all eternity in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is why it's so important that when we give the gospel, that we deal with sin and that we point to Christ. Because the gospel is not just getting to go to a nicer place called heaven and having a nice house called a mansion and having beautiful streets without potholes called streets of gold and not having sickness and pain and suffering and death. It's, those are, in a sense, byproducts. The first and foremost message of the gospel is forgiveness of sin and a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's really at the heart of the gospel. And 
It's not that we can't talk about heaven and we can't talk about the bliss of, of heaven, but it's really about God and our relationship with God through Jesus Christ and receiving forgiveness of sin as we repent of our sin and place our faith and trust in Him. And Christ here speaks to the resurrection. We'll spend our, our, our time next Sunday morning dealing with the hope of the resurrection, but Jesus just touches on that here as He continues in this answer to the religious leaders. And He speaks to the resurrection, one unto death and one unto life. I hope that each and every one of us this morning are prepared for the resurrection. Because there will be a resurrection. For those who don't know Christ as their Savior, it will be a resurrection unto death. For those who know Christ as their Savior, it will be a resurrection unto life. And that's ultimately what Jesus is bringing home here at the end of this section in chapter 5. Are we prepared? Do we know Christ? Are we prepared for the resurrection day? And which resurrection will we be a part of? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these tremendous truths. Lord, we look forward to the resurrection day. May we be prepared for it by knowing you as our Savior first and foremost, but by also living in light of the resurrection, by occupying till you come. Lord, we thank you for these claims to the deity of Christ that speak to the inspiration and the authority of God's word and to Christ as the only Savior. Help us, Lord, to live in light of these truths. Help us to share these truths with others. Lord, speak to our hearts even in these closing moments as we sing this song. Lord, pray that you will do your work in our lives and draw us close to you. And help us, Lord, to go out energized to serve you in every way that you have called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll ask that you stand to your feet. Jake's going to come and lead us in a closing hymn. Verse number 2 of hymn number 12, praise him, praise him, as Jake comes. If God is doing business in your heart, in your life, you can take care of that even now as we sing. Praise him, praise him, as Jake comes and leads us.